and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside Numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thank you for spending time with me today. I know there are a lot of choices out there. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. I'd love to know what you want to know about Cubs baseball. Welcome to episode 13. I'm recording this on a Friday, so that sounds about right. Baseball is down to its final four, which means the games are getting bigger and bigger. And if you're a Cub fan, it means what could be an action-packed offseason is getting closer by the day. Last week, I talked about the impact arbitration can have on a team budget and compared the Cubs' history of handling arbitration cases with that of the Braves. This week, I dive into free agency. What does intelligent spending really mean? How does arbitration impact free agent budgets? And how did those things converge to lead the Cubs from the 2016 promised land to the depths of 2021 and 2022? Does any of that history indicate what the Cubs will do this offseason? Let's find some answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here. We. Go! In the last week, we've seen Anthony Rizzo hit multiple postseason home runs. I've seen Kyle Schwarber launch a moonshot 488 feet into the night sky. I've seen you, Darvish, spinning the ball in ways that only he can. Part of me, most of me, maybe all of me still roots for these guys, even as they wear navy pinstripes, red pinstripes, and some ugly yellow and brown concoction. How did we get here? Eight years ago today, the Cubs were out of the playoffs. They were out of the playoffs for the sixth straight year, for the 21st time in 25 years, for the 25th time in 30 years, They were out of the postseason for the 64th time in 70 seasons. But this time it was going to be different. Theo Epstein was in charge and there seemed to be something growing in Wrigleyville. Kyle Hendricks and Jake Arrieta, both obtained during the rebuild and midseason trades, were looking good. Anthony Rizzo and Starlin Castro were young stars in the making and it seemed the minor league system was finally bursting with potential star power. Another losing season was something I was used to. The belief that sustained success could be right around the corner was something brand new. Seven years ago today, the Cubs lost Game 4 of the NLCS, the Mets completing the sweep to head to the World Series. That series sucked, watching Daniel bleeping Murray just go off. But that year was different. For the first time since 2007, and for probably only the second time in my lifetime, the Cubs had been beaten in the postseason and I was neither crushed nor bleak on the future. The Cubs won an elimination game in Pittsburgh and knocked the hated Cardinals out of the playoffs in a series that featured bombs by so many young guys that looked to be keys to the future. The NLCS that year was playing with house money, and Cub fans went home with a profit. Six years ago today, the Cubs were coming home from Los Angeles, having taken a 3-2 lead in the NLCS. I'm not sure any Cub fans were really 100% confident about a series win, but it sure was a lot of fun. And little did I know that the next day would probably be the second favorite game in my 40 years as a Cub fan. I would be at our next door neighbor's wedding reception. Happy anniversary, Andrea and Charlie. Getting text updates on the game from our then 12-year-old. We did make it home in time to see the last couple innings when the outcome was largely decided. But as much as I hate to miss any important game, it was really, really special seeing the game via text through my kids' eyes. 
And I had no idea what drama was going to be coming in Cleveland after that, after that day. Five years ago today, the Cubs had just spent their first day of 2017 as anything other than the defending World Series champions, having just been eliminated by the Dodgers in the NLCS. 2017 felt like so much more of a grind than the prior two seasons because expectations changed. Curses were gone, and so was the lovable losers moniker. The baby bears had grown up and were expected to be a power. Three straight appearances in the NLCS? That was unthinkable at any other point in my lifetime. Four years ago today, it was starting to become pretty clear that changes were needed. After leading the division late in September, the Brewers got white hot, winning nine of their last ten, including their last seven straight, to force a game 163. The Cubs lost that game and then the wildcard game to the Rockies with barely a whimper on offense. Theo would declare the offense was broken. Three years ago today, there was no longer any doubt that changes were needed. The Cubs continued to struggle offensively and missed the postseason for the first time in five years. Two years ago today, not much had changed. The Cubs had a better COVID season than expected, winning the division, but they still got swept out of the wildcard series by the Marlins, scoring just a single run in the series. One year ago today, I didn't even know if there would be baseball in 2022 because of a likely lockout in the upcoming labor dispute. But I wanted the Cubs to be active in free agency because I thought the team could compete in a weak division with the right additions, even after trading away most of the core that led to all the successes over the past six years. Today, I sit here thinking about what the Cubs accomplished this season. Another losing season, but a season far better than it seemed it would be in July. And I'm a tick or two ahead of where I was this time last year. There's a future with this team. It's not here yet, and I don't know who exactly will be on the next Cubs postseason team, but I think the Cubs have more than a handful of those guys on the roster today. It's very easy to watch these playoffs and think, boy, the Cubs just need to spend more money like the Dodgers and Yankees. Or the Cubs just need to be more aggressive in free agency like the Phillies and Mets. Or the Cubs need to develop talent like the Astros and develop pitching like the Guardians. Or the Cubs need to have a sense of urgency like the Padres did. The Cubs need to rely on young, cheap players like the Rays do. In reality, the Cubs need to do a little bit of all those things. They need to balance all those approaches in a way that works best for the Cubs. A year from now, two years from now, three years from now, I hope fans of other teams are looking at the things the Cubs have done and wishing their ownership had taken the same course. There's no single way to win in baseball. It helps to spend money, but having a top 10 payroll didn't help the Red Sox or White Sox make the playoffs this year. It helps to have star talent, but the Angels haven't sniffed the postseason in years despite having two generational talents on the roster. To win, and especially to win big and win consistently, a team needs to have enough of a healthy payroll to spend through some bad outcomes and also develop enough baseline talent to stock a healthy chunk of the Major League roster, plus some depth to cover inevitable injuries. This is a really difficult game that people think is easy. It's not. It's very hard. Last week I mentioned ignoring your friend when she tells you the Cubs won't spend money. The Cubs do spend. From 2015 to 2020, the Cubs had the 11th, 5th, 8th, 4th, 3rd, and 3rd highest payrolls in baseball. Even the past two seasons, they've fallen back, but only to 14th each year. You need to spend. You need to draft and develop. You need to look for trading opportunities. There's no magic recipe to win in baseball. I think it's like so many other things in life. You want some moderation. If you rely all on one bucket, you set yourself up to fail. Theo Epstein, the master of all rebuilders, used all of those paths to build the 2016 championship team. But we got to where we are today because of a lack of balance and a lack of diversity in approach after that championship season. Last week, I compared the Cubs' approach 
to arbitration raises to what the Braves have been doing. Taking so many of their good young players and locking up their RB years plus the first couple free aging years. This week, let's dig into the free agent spending to see how these two pieces come together. I think it'll become very clear how we got to where we are today, and it may lay out the roadmap for avoiding the stagnation and fade in the next great Cubs team. I know fans cringe when they hear Jed say it, but the answer really is intelligent spending. The phrase isn't sexy, and let's be honest, it sucks to hear when the team is in sell mode and cutting back on spending. Too often, fans hear intelligent spending and they think of shopping off the discount rack. Sometimes that's true, but that's not all of it. You can spend intelligently at every single price point. Spending wisely means getting what you need, when you need it, and in a way that doesn't hinder future success. Heading into the 2015 season, the Cubs had young talent in Chicago. Anthony Rizzo, Starlin Castro, Jake Arrieta, Pedro Strope, Hector Rondon, Dexter Fowler, and what appeared to be a lot of elite talent very close to Major League Ready. What did the Cubs need? They needed an ace and more veteran leadership to teach the kids how to win. So they went out and spent $155 million over six years for John Lester and $5 million for two seasons of David Ross. John Lester is probably the best free agent acquisition by any Chicago team in any sport ever. And David Ross provided leadership in 2.2 Fangraphs war as a catcher at the end of his career. In 2015, his value was mostly as Lester's personal catcher and a mentor to many of the young guys. But in 2016, he hit two. He hit more homers than he had in any season since 2007, and he posted a slightly above average WRC plus for the first time since 2012. In 2016, to get over the hump, the Cubs needed a consistent bat and positional versatility, and Ben Zobris brought both of those in spades. Some thought his four-year, $56 million contract was too high for an aging player. He was 35 in 2016. But Zoe put the super in super utility player for the Cubs that season, posting a 123 WRC+, providing 3.5 war and leading the Cubs over Cleveland in the World Series, in which he was named World Series MVP. You can spend intelligently when you're winning, but you can also spend intelligently when you're not. The Cubs invested $6 million for a single season of Scott Feldman in 2013 and saw him thrive in Chicago. So they flipped him to a contending Orioles team looking for another reliable starter and brought back future Cy Young winner Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope, who would anchor the Cubs' pen for the next six years. Over the past two seasons, the Cubs have spent very intelligently, finding bullpen arms they thought they could fix or tweak, and they've had tremendous success building quality bullpens with guys like Ryan Tapera, Andrew Chafin, David Robertson, and Michael Givens. All of those guys netted prospects in trade, the best of which currently look to be power arms Ben Brown and Daniel Palencia. Jed doesn't say the quiet parts out loud like so many people do. The reason the Cubs went from the championship in 2016 to playoff whimpers in 2018 and 2020 in a complete sell-off is because there was a stretch where the Cubs did not spend intelligently. They did spend. In fact, the season they spent the most was maybe the most disappointing of all. In 2019, they had a payroll of $251 million, according to Spotrack, which was 121% of the $206 million competitive balance tax threshold, or CBT. From 2016 to 2020, the Cubs spent at 98%, 93%, 106%, 122%, and 109% of CBT before falling back to 82 and 84% the past two seasons. The Cubs got where they are today, which is really, let's be honest, where they've been since late in the 2018 season, by trying to swim upstream against baseball currents. 
Theo played his original build in Chicago almost flawlessly. Sure, there was that awful Edwin Jackson contract that resulted in $26 million worth of dead money in 2015 and 2016, but there were a lot of great pickups in those early years while the Cubs were making use of their high draft picks and international free agent money. I mentioned Feldman, but the Cubs also got great value for small investments in David DeJesus, Chris Coughlin, Nate Shearholtz, and Jason Hamill. Jason Hamill twice. They spiced things up with some of the already mentioned vets plus short deals on John Lackey and David Ross. Where Theo ultimately fell short in those critical years was player development, the new name of the game in baseball, and what would ultimately propel organizations like the Astros, Rays, Dodgers, and Guardians to the top. The Cubs had a great run of young players, but the young stars were mostly first-round draft choices and international signings. They never really had that depth you need to go stock a roster over a long run. Look at the Astros. They lose Carlos Correa, and Jeremy Pena and others come in to fill the gap, and they're right back to being up two games to none in the ALCS. Back to the lack of balance I mentioned last week, the Cubs loaded up on college bats as their top priority, and that paid off. But the best in-house pitcher developed during that era was Rob Zestrizny. The Cubs were able to maintain strong pitching to the end of that run, but they had to spend too many resources chasing innings, and it cost them. It's probably no surprise to you that the 2014 and 2015 Cubs on a war-to-cost basis were two of the best Cubs free agent classes of the Theo and Jed era. They found great value in Chris Coughlin and Jason Hamill in 2014, and then in 15 they struck gold again with Hamill and added Lester and Ross. 2016 was kind of a middling class looking just at the war-to-dollars metric, but that's largely because of the impact of Jason Hayward's long contract. The Cubs did get tremendous value from Ben Zobris, Dexter Fowler, and John Lackey. But the foundation began to crumble in 2017. It was only bit by bit at first. The Cubs, fresh off their first championship in 108 years, didn't do much in free agency, spending only $16 million total on John Jay, Brian Densing, and Koji Uehara. This was due to a combination of factors. Ongoing money from the free agency binges in 2015 and 2016, and the fact that the Cubs really didn't have a lot of holes to fill. You look around the position, you had Anthony Rizzo and Javier Baez and Addison Russell and Chris Bryant, and all these guys were set in roles. Jason Hamill and Dexter Fowler were gone, so they brought in Jay to take Dexter's place until Albert Armora was ready, and they planned on Mike Montgomery filling the number five starter position. They also traded outfielder Jorge Soler to Kansas City for closer Wade Davis, who was in the last year of team control. Davis came up aces and was an anchor in that bullpen, replacing Chapman. One quick aside, championships are special because they're hard. It's hard to win. The 2016 Cubs team was largely healthy, which allowed the Cubs to play to their full potential. In 2017, there was a lot more time missed due to injury, and while the Cubs largely played well, they came out of the gate slow and were not as consistent as in 2016. When you look at the teams who stay on top in baseball, you see teams that are constantly working to get better. Every offseason, they bring in some free agents, make some trades, and let some players move on. The Cubs said goodbye to Hamill, Ross, Fowler, Travis Wood, Chris Coughlin, and Aroldis Chapman after the 2016, and as noted, didn't really make any significant additions. The Cubs would base their hopes for improvement or continuity on the development of the swingman and organic growth from their young core particularly the return of Kyle Schwarber from his ACL tear in 2016. I think when Jed talks about stacking good decisions on top of good decisions, he's specifically talking about not repeating the off-seasons from 2017 to 2019. 2017 was a good value, but there was not enough influx of talent or organic growth to offset what was lost from 2016. I couldn't see it then, but the course was set. 
That core of players were winners, and they would grind out that 2017 season to a division championship. But as they say, magic comes with a price. Theo always talked about waves of talent coming up from the minors, and it looked like they were there in 2016. But there really wouldn't be a next wave for three to four years because of holes in the development system. The Cubs traded current Yankee second baseman Glaber Torres to the Yankees for Aroldis Chapman in 2016. At the time, the one Cub weakness was the back end of the bullpen. Hector Rondon and Pedro Strope were having good years, but the Cubs had needed one more big arm. Chapman proved extra critical when Rondon and Strope fought injuries late in the season. There are several reasons why every team wants a deep farm system, and this is certainly one of those. You can trade from a position of strength to shore up weaknesses. Torres hadn't reached the bigs yet, and while he was a top prospect, he also looked blocked by Addison Russell, Javi Baez, and Chris Bryant in the Cubs infield. I'd make that trade again, and again, and again, 100%. The Cubs saw their window, correctly identified their need, and went all in. So, back to 2017. The Cubs still had not produced a reliable Major League arm, so when the Cubs needed more pitching, they sent infielders Jaimer Candelario and Isaac Paredes to Detroit for reliever Justin Wilson and catcher Alex Avila. And in a deal that probably did as much as anything to shape the next five years for the Cubs, sent pitching prospect Dylan Cease and outfield prospect Eloy Jimenez across town for Jose Quintana. Quintana was cost-controlled and was actually big for the Cubs down the stretch and in the 2017 playoffs. And again, this can be a prime use of a deep farm system. But now the Cubs system was no longer deep. By fan graphs, the Cubs had a top five farm system in 2014, the number one farm system in baseball in 2015, still a top five season in 2016. But by 2017, they were middle of the pack, which is to be expected when so many guys graduated to the majors. But that next wave, they were gone or they didn't develop. Jorge Soler, Glaber Torres, Dylan Cease, Eloy Jimenez, and Jaime Candelario had all been traded for pitching. Last week when I talked about the Braves' strategy for locking up all their young arbitration talent, I pointed out that one of the greatest benefits of that approach was establishing cost consistency. You lock in your young players for something closer to a set price versus letting them roll year to year in big arbitration raises. The Cubs did that with Castro and Rizzo early in their careers and wouldn't take that approach again for a good five seasons. The Cubs made it to the NLCS in 2017, but it was clear that that team was no longer able to be that elite, versatile team that won it all in 2016. Some of the young players had stagnated a bit, in particular Addison Russell and Kyle Schwarber, plus Almora was looking more and more like a platoon player. Heading into 2018, the Cubs again had no pitching ready to come up and contribute, and most of the field was filled with established players. The only real potential hole seemed to be another outfielder to help balance out what was becoming more and more of a boom or bust offense. The Cubs didn't make a move on a position player at all. They made a huge push into free agency, throwing down $60 million for starters Hugh Darvish, Tyler Chatwood, and Drew Smiley, closer Brandon Morrow, and relievers Brian Densing and Steve Ciszek. That new $60 million, paired with the $16 million the Cubs paid in arbitration raises, arbitration raises for KB, Hendricks, Russell, and Tommy LaStella, tacked $76 million onto the payroll, likely further limiting the roster flexibility for Theo and Jed. The 2018 free agent pitching binge would prove to be the second worst free agent class of the era, really only saved by Steve Ciszek's two seasons and Hugh Darvish's 2020 season. Almost 70% of the Cubs' payroll was made up of free agent buys and arbitration raises at that point. I'll step back here to say that free agency is a critical part of team building. No matter how good you are, there will always be additions needed each offseason. 
No team, not even the Rays or Astros or Braves, build entirely through player development or trades. Bullpen arm and bench bat pickups are an offseason staple everywhere, and then teams supplement their own talent by signing more expensive players as warranted. At the other extreme, very few teams have success buying an entire team. Probably the closest I've seen were those 1997 and 2003 Florida Marlins teams. Yeah, I know. Who spent huge twice, won two titles, and then immediately dismantled the team the following offseason. The Cubs should be active every offseason, and as one of the richest teams in baseball, should be going after star power on the regular. That said, though, free agents, especially star-level free agents, are typically some of the most inefficient dollars you can spend. When you buy star power, you're paying star power prices for longer durations, which often means star-level money to the back end of someone's career. That's fine. That's the game. You just have to know that and pick your spots. John Lester was overpaid at the end of his Cubs career, but whoever was going to sign him was going to have to pay those years in order to get the end of his prime, which was absolutely 100% worth every penny. Back to 2018, that class was a bust. Ciszek was good, but Joe Madden had to run him into the ground due to an overall lack of quality arms in the bullpen. Hugh Darvish missed most of the season with injuries, and Tyler Chatwood spent way too much time hitting the ball. Brandon Morrow looked like an injury risk, and that turned out to be true. He missed the entire, almost the entire second half after a dominating first half and never pitched for the Cubs again. As much of a bargain as Densing was in 2017, bringing him back proved to be a bad call, as he was ultimately released later in the season. Drew Smiley was brought into rehab after Tommy John, but he would not pitch in either of his first two years on the Cub payroll. The Cubs squeaked into the postseason, though, largely on the back of pitching, which now included Cole Hamels, who was picked up from the Phillies in a deadline deal for three low-level prospects. That whole free agent class backfired. The pitching did not provide anywhere near $60 million worth of production, and the offense did not get the organic growth they were looking for. By 2019, any semblance of balance was gone. The Cubs farm system ranked 29th in baseball. The payroll was bloated from the 2016 and 2018 free agent binges, and the Cubs still needed more pitching. Only now Theo was openly talking about the offense also being broken. The Cubs didn't add much via free agency in the offseason leading into 2019, Just $13.8 million on Daniel Descalso, Kendall Graveman, and Tony Barnett. Of those three, Graveman never pitched as a Cub, who he was rehabbing after surgery, and Descalso and Barnett combined for a negative 0.7 war. While it's not factually correct, this is likely the season that started the whole the Cubs won't spend thing. The only substantive move that offseason was, again, chasing pitching. Because there was still no pitching coming to the big leagues from the farm, the Cubs spent $20 million picking up the option on 35-year-old Cole Hamels. Hamels was okay that season, but the whole thing just didn't work. The offense was still broken, the starting pitching was getting by on duct tape, and the injuries to Rizzo and KB were piling up. The Cubs did get a bit of a dead cat bounce in 2020, probably due in large part to the short season, plus vintage Kyle Hendricks and the return of a high-end U Darvish. But 2020 also came with the highest round of arbitration increases of the entire Theo Jed era. $22.5 million in raises, which would have been worse if Rizzo and Hendricks hadn't already been locked down. Add COVID and the uncertain baseball economics, and the Cubs sat on their hands. At this point, the championship era was over, but it would take another two seasons to fully close that door. Jed and Theo stacked a lot of good decisions on top of good decisions through the 2017 season, but the inability to develop any kind of pitching talent was the ticking time bomb. The Cubs spent money and made use of the farm system to trade for major league talent, but by 2018, the 
minor league farm system was the crumbling foundation upon which the Cubs were stacking risky free agent signings. Eventually, it all fell down. It hurt watching KB, Rizzo, Javi, and probably Contreras all play their last games with the Cubs, but the bill had to be paid. The foundation had to be rebuilt. I won't even try to argue that this was the only path, or that this was the best path, but by not acting between 2016 and 2018 to trade or extend some of the young stars, they locked themselves into something adjacent to this path. So where's Jed going from here? He's not one to say much. As I said last week, he really shouldn't say that much. But if you look at the numbers and what he's done since 2020, I think it's pretty clear that he wants to incrementally add talent and then push harder when he gets close to winning. I think we're almost there. Last year, the Cubs spent $80 million on contracts for 12 players, but only three of those guys got multiple years. The Cubs had to supplement the offense, the defense, and pitching, and Jed hit every area. He added Marcus Stroman to the rotation for three years and Seiya Suzuki to the lineup for five. Gomes finally gave Contreras a legitimate backup, and then he rebuilt the bullpen and tried to add some infield defense. The bullpen was a huge success, but Andleton Simmons and Jonathan VR were not. The Cubs have not had a bottom half payroll in baseball since 2014, and they're currently projected to be $110 million under the CBT for 2023, so look for the Cubs to spend. They may not spend the whole wad this offseason, but I'll be surprised if they don't get the payroll north of $210 million with $233 million being the tax threshold this season, which means they can easily add 70 to $80 million in new spending. If you walk around the decisions the Cubs are making and you look close and read between the lines, all signs really do point to an aggressive offseason. Adding Stroman for two years plus an opt-out in the third year makes no sense if you think you're four years away from contending. Similarly, spending $17 million on Seiya Suzuki is pointless if all you're planning to do is lose 90 games and trade for prospects. No, the Cubs definitely made an aggressive play last year. They didn't do enough, but they made an aggressive play. They also reportedly had a seven-year deal out to Carlos Correa, but that fell through when Correa changed representation. I think Jed will throw big money out this offseason. Also look for the Cubs to be active on the trade market. The farm system is arguably as healthy as it's ever been. They don't have the elite talent of 2014 to 2016, but they have more depth than they've ever had. The Cubs have six players on the updated Fangraph's top 100, and that list includes four outfielders. With Suzuki signed for four more years and apparent negotiations in progress with Ian Happ for an extension, those four outfielders will never all start together for the Cubs, especially when you factor in Nelson Velazquez and Christopher Morrell, who are already in Chicago. That's great trade depth. The Cubs also have five to six projectable pitchers due to hit the bigs over the next two seasons. That's trade depth. And it could also help fulfill Jed's goal of having an all-in-house developed bullpen. A far cry from the Cubs of 2017 to 2020. Until this team does more, yeah, they're still just a 74-win team that hasn't been a threat to make a deep run in the playoffs since 2017. But all the pain of the past two seasons is finally starting to show some results. Jed has talked about action, and he's been acting. Looking back, his actions line up really well with what he's talked about. Ricketts has talked about the money being there and the fact that the Cubs were almost always able to get more payroll at the deadline or go all in on big offseason signings says that that has almost always been true. I will criticize ownership for crying poor after 2020, but as I said earlier, even that season saw the Cubs carry a payroll above the CBT. I do think Ricketts locked in a cap last year for 2021, which probably drove the Darvish trade so that Jed could kickstart depth in the farm system and have some payroll wiggle room. 
But what really drove the biblical losses comment from Ricketts, another comment that Cubs fans love, was a giant element of truth. The ownership group borrowed a massive amount of money to fund the renovations of Wrigley and the surrounding areas over the prior eight to 10 years. When COVID hit and it was all shut down, Ricketts lost a metric crap ton of revenue. With attendance dipping to levels not seen since 1997, Ricketts lost more revenue last year. With marquee ratings down 20% year over year, that's more revenue lost. With season ticket prices down 5% for next year, that's more revenue. I say that not to be a sob story for ownership, but because that's the reality and that's what's going to drive the Cubs forward this offseason. You know what generates revenue? Excitement. You know what creates excitement? A roster full of really, really good baseball players. Talent drives the bus. The Ricketts family didn't get rich enough to buy the Cubs by being stupid. An exciting Cubs team fills seats, bars, restaurants, and the coming sports book. A contending Cubs team is a huge TV draw. They're going to be aggressive this offseason. I believe that not because they said that. I believe that because that's what they've done in the past. That's what they did last offseason. And when you look around at all the ways in which the front office and ownership benefit, all signs point to making the team better. All that remains to be seen at this point is whether they stack good decisions on top of good decisions or whether they stack other things on top of other things. This will be a wild offseason across baseball. Correa has already said he'll opt out, as expected. And now Shohei Otani has actually said publicly what has been widely reported, that he's not happy with the Angels. It's all there. I don't have hard expectations that the Cubs will improve enough to be a World Series favorite next year, but if Jed keeps stacking good decisions and builds to the future while maintaining depth in the system, there's no reason the Cubs can't compete for a central division title or a wildcard slot. As the Padres and Phillies are showing us this year, all you have to do is get in. I want to thank you for spending time with me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you've already done that, thank you so much. Maybe share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CubsPS+. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!